Digital media, iTunes podcast, smartphone apps, and from the online website. This is Outlook, the talking newspaper for Coventry. Hello, and welcome from me, Nigel. You're into this week's edition of Outlook, which is being recorded on Wednesday, the 9th of August. And uh, coming up in the next 90 minutes or so, uh, we'll be visiting the penultimate building in the 50 buildings of Coventry at uh, uh, Kirby House in Park Street with Margaret. Now, we're having a very brief period of ice cream uh, eating, hopefully, with a bit of sunshine. So we thought it appropriate that uh, Sue should tell us more about ice cream vans and their lovely jingles. Uh, and last week you may remember that Bill started a story about a man who claimed to have gone to the northernmost place uh, he's completing that story this week and we'll find out a little more about what the Fleet Street reporter said now we're all encouraged to have a five a day uh, five a day means uh, fruit as well of course and bananas is the one that uh, Sheila's been looking at this week a nourishing fruit but also, of course, more worrying is why solo diners have to pay more than uh, twins or two people together, which is rare in my experience, but apparently it does happen. So uh, Sue has been looking at that one. And we're going to end this programme with Dave going on a puffer train uh, on a Harry Shaw day out trip to Bury and East Lancashire Railway. But of course, before we, all that, we've got uh, news from the centre, we've got your sport, uh, we've got uh, what, the, all the usual bits in any case. But to start with, as ever, we're going to be the news with Elaine and myself. Outlook News And here we go again The prospect of more bin strikes across Coventry has split those in the city Residents have reacted to the announcement from Unite that industrial action is inevitable after talks with Coventry City Council reportedly collapsed The union said it would be releasing strike dates soon as the city braces for a repeat of the walkouts which hit the city for months last year. This time the row is over a move to scrap some terms and conditions, including a condition that allows refuse workers to leave work when collection rounds are finished, rather than stay until the end of the working day. This has split the opinion of residents, some of whom questioned why refuse workers were even contemplating walking out while others backed them. One said, With Tom White collections and drop-off points, we were absolutely fine. Didn't they learn then that we really can do without them? They will go on strike and get nothing out of it again. Going on strike because the employer expects workers to stay at work for the whole time they get paid is the most ridiculous reason I have heard so far. Another said, do the same that everyone else has to do that work an 8, 10 or 12 hour shifts. We all have to do the full hours or lose pay. I'm certain there is plenty of litter to be picked up around Coventry to complete their shift. One said, this will be controversial but here goes. I support the bin workers and agree that once they've collected all they have to do on a set day and sorted out everything else on the working day, why shouldn't they then go home? 
After all, they can only collect a set amount that's put out. I doubt if many of us would want to empty bins all day, would we? A spokesman for Coventry City Council said, It is totally untrue that we are refusing to negotiate and we are not issuing threats. What is true is that out of over 70 drivers, only 42 were Unite members, of which only 19 voted for strike action. We believe the way through this is by negotiation, so it is bitterly disappointing that the union appears to be taking its members towards strike action once again. They left yesterday's meeting not willing to talk further. If we do get to the point of strike action, we know this will cause disruption for our residents and want to assure everyone that we will do all we can to minimise the disruption this will cause, as well as continuing to work with all unions to resolve these issues. The West Midlands Police and Crime Commissioner is demanding to know when the government will adequately regulate private e-scooters. Simon Foster had been briefed by the West Midlands Police that last year there were 23 collisions in the area involving e-scooters in which people were seriously injured. There were 22 the year before that. One person has died after being involved in an e-scooter collision and Mr Foster and his political team have been urging the government to regulate the electronic devices for over a year now. It's currently illegal to ride a privately owned e-scooter on public land, including roads, pavements and cycle paths, without complying with a number of legal requirements. However, hundreds of people flout the law every day. In 2022, the government promised to change the law and better regulate privately owned e-scooters, but no change has yet been made. The PCC wants to see a regulatory regime that is fit for purpose and that includes capping of electric scooter speed, mandated safety helmets and rigorous safety standards. He said, I cannot understand why the government is failing to act decisively and get a grip when it comes to regulating dangerous, privately owned e-scooters. It is absolutely clear that if you do not stop people buying and riding electric scooters that can travel up to 70 miles an hour, then collisions will happen and some will be extremely serious. The government has said it will make changes to the law, but nothing has been done, and the inaction is making life in the West Midlands roads and pavements much more dangerous than it needs to be. And another divisive issue, cycleways. Some say Binley Cycleway has been a godsend since it opened, while others say it's dealt a hammer blow to Binley. Businesses say the number of people stopping at their shops has been hit badly since the cycle path was unveiled. Yet for cyclists, the route has transformed their lives and, they say, the area. It's a tale not of two cities, but two experiences of life in a Coventry community. Before the cycle lane was installed, many businesses we spoke to said they had decent levels of passing trade. But now the cycle lane has narrowed the road, they say it has hurt trade. The owner of Biggin Hall Convenience Store said he is losing all his passing customers and he feels he is not being listened to, adding, I and many of my customers signed a petition to say we didn't want the cycle lane in the area and we even went to a council meeting. 
but they didn't listen to us and told us it had already been planned. When ambulances or emergency services come, they have to go all the way round, which is too much. Steve Haywood, who works in freshest greengrocers, said some businesses have had to up sticks. He commented, Roadworks have been going on for so long that shop owners have now gone elsewhere and it's hard to get them back once they have gone. He also said that he hasn't seen many cyclists use the cycle lane either and thinks it's a waste of money. However, other residents in Coventry think the cycle lane has brought a positive attribute to the city. Ola Quorm, who lives in Coventry, uses the cycle lane every day and says it's amazing. This is the first one I have seen in Coventry, wide and with traffic lights, she said. I see more cyclists using it than anywhere else in Coventry. A few times already I have been pushed to the side of the road, but I strongly believe that more cycle lanes would encourage more people, young and old, to cycle to school, work or shop. Another resident who thinks the cycle lane will bring positive moves is Andrew Marsh, coordinator of the University of Warwick Bicycle User Group. Andrew, who has used the Bindi cycle lane, says this is important on what is a main east-west route in the city. Many novice riders are uncomfortable on roads, and even experienced riders value being separated from heavy vehicles and fast traffic. Adam Tranter, the West Midlands Cycling and Walking Commissioner, said it is important to look at the data. He said, so far in 2023, the Binley Cycleway has seen 75,300 cycling trips, with 15,765 in June alone, and it's not even fully finished yet. Tranter, who was appointed by the West Midlands Mayor Andy Street in 2021, continued, The Bindley Cycleway is a brilliant start, but it also needs to connect to many more high-quality cycle routes across the city, so people can choose cycling as a cheap, safe and convenient option for their everyday journeys. A Coventry MP has expressed concern after it emerged a Boots store and pharmacy in the city will be closing later this year. Twayno Owatami said she was disappointed and concerned to learn the branch in Jardine Crescent was to shut permanently. The Tarnhill shop will be closed on the plans by Boots to reduce UK outlets from 2,200 to 1,900. News the company will be closing 300 of its shops in the UK was widely reported by the media in June. According to the BBC, branches that are near each other will close under Boots consolidation plans. It is understood members of staff at affected shops will be offered roles at nearby stores. Boots did not comment after being contacted by the local democracy reporting service. Ms. Owatami, who represents Coventry in North West, has now started a petition to save the Jardine Crescent branch. Her appeal says news of the store's closure is deeply worrying for all who rely on it, including many elderly people in the area. As the only pharmacy in Jardine Crescent, the closure will not only impact patients' access to medicine, but will exacerbate health inequality in the area, the petition states. 
Customers relying on the local Boots Pharmacy will now have to travel to the store at Cannon Park, which is two miles away. This will disproportionately impact those with travelling difficulties, including disabled and elderly customers. The nearest non-Boots Pharmacy to Jardine Present Crescent is a 13-minute walk away, according to Google Maps. Miss Alwatami also called more widely for local pharmacies to stay open following news of the planned boots closures. The MP, who used to work for the NHS as a cancer pharmacist, said, Pharmacies deliver a wide range of community-based medical services for the people that need them most. She added, Local pharmacies are the heart of the community. We must do everything we can to save them. A petition has been launched against plans to build a 5G phone mast in Coventry, which critics say is too close to residential properties. A planning application has yet to be submitted, but a city councillor has already objected and launched a petition against it. Councillor Gary Ridley was made aware after receiving information via the pre-application process. The plans offer a 5G mast on Sutton Avenue in the Woodlands Ward. More than 80 people have signed the petition. The petition on the City Council website states, Residents are concerned that the proposed 5G phone mast on Sutton Avenue will be located too close to residential properties. Residents are rightly proud of their area and the proposed mast will be an eyesore. We call upon the council and 5G operators to source alternative locations that are less obtrusive and located further away from residential properties. Councillor Ridley, who is leader of the Conservative group on the council, has also submitted a formal letter of objection to the idea. It is one of a number of proposals for 5G mass in the area. In July, plans were lodged with the Council to build a 15-metre-high mast in Binley. Reports submitted as part of the application stated that people generally recognise the merits of high-speed telecommunications and the necessity of 5G masts. Discussing the Sutton Avenue proposals, Councillor Ridley said, He is not against 5G masts but urge the communications firm to put them in the right place to balance the need for communications with the impact on residents. Another 5G mast will be built in Tile Hill after plans were given the green light on the appeal in May by a government inspector. Coventry City Council has thrown out the plans last year over concerns over the mast's poor location and excessive height. Thousands of jobs, including dozens in Coventry and Warwickshire, could be at risk with high street retailer Wilco heading to administration. The boss of the homeware and hardware chain, which employs 12,000 people across the UK, said Wilco will enter insolvency after failing to secure a takeover to help the business with mounting cash pressures. Wilco, which has about 400 shops, including two in Coventry and three in Warwickshire, filed a notice of intention to appoint administrators at the High Court last Thursday. The company said it had no choice but to file for the potential insolvency that will continue a possible rescue takeover. Last year, the retailer agreed a deal to borrow £40 million from restructuring 
spe specialist Hilco after posting significant losses. And earlier this year, the company hired advisors from PwC in a bid to find a buyer and secure fresh funding. It comes a week after official figures showed insolvency in England and Wales surged to their highest level for 14 years in the second quarter of 2023, as firms were hit by tighter consumer budgets and rising borrowing costs. Wilco Chief Executive Mark Jackson said, while we can confirm we've had a significant level of interest, including indicative offers that we believe would meet all our financial criteria to recapitalise the business, at present we don't have an offer that provides the necessary liquidity in the time we have available, given the mounting cash pressures we're faced with. Unfortunately, with this in mind, we're taking the difficult decision to file a notice of intention. We'll continue to progress discussions with the interested parties with the aim of completing a transaction which preserves the business and will encourage those in interested parties we're in, we're in discussions with to move as fast as possible. An acclaimed street artist has paid tribute to Dippy the Dinosaur with an original work reimagining Coventry's skyline in the form of a prehistoric creature. Andy Council has been painting three of the inside walls at the city's Herbert Art Gallery and Museum, inspired by Dippy's stay in the city. He has spent more than 50 hours adorning them with a 7 metre wide spray paint rendering of Coventry City Centre, spread across the shape of a Diplodocus. His Coventry work, which is available to view until September the 3rd, incorporates the likes of the old and new cathedrals and the elephant building, as well as a host of other recognisable landmarks that Coventrians of all ages will be able to spot. Dippy the Dinosaur, a life-size plaster of Paris replica of a Diplodocus Carnegie skeleton, is now six months into its three-year residence in the city, it is on loan from London's Natural History Museum. The Coventry Dinosaur is part of the Herbert's Work on Walls project, which has seen some of the walls in the gallery transformed by contemporary artists in response to the Herbert's own collections. And he said he hoped the work would be an accessible way for people to experience art. He uses a combination of digital drawings and images to develop his creations, starting with a grid and building up layers, using certain focal points across the piece as anchors to help manage large canvases. Andy, whose work includes the Bristol Dinosaur in 2005 and Crouch End Dinosaur in 2011, said... The work contains Coventry's ring road from head to tail, which in a sense holds together much of the city centre. I think people enjoy seeing things that are familiar to them represented in an unfamiliar way. And with something of this size, the more you look at it, the more you hopefully uncover and recognise. Dominic Bubb, Exhibitions Manager at the Herbert Art Gallery and Museum, said... Andy has created something really impressive, which I think a lot of Coventry residents will enjoy exploring, especially with Dippy proving so popular over the last few months. It is located in the gallery just up the stairs from Dippy, 
which means visitors can spend time marvelling at the dinosaur itself before having a closer look at Andy's creation and seeing how he has reimagined Coventry in a unique and accessible way. The work of art will return in the autumn as part of the Dippy VR experience at the Herbert. Construction has begun for a brand new Aldi supermarket in Coventry. It will take over the long vacant space previously occupied by Outfit at Central Six Retail Park. Aldi previously said the development will not adversely affect nearby residents, adding that footfall and goods deliveries will be absorbed into the existing movements of Warwick Road. It will be located next to Boots and Tui. Contractors have been seen at the site as building work takes place with the store set to be fully refitted. Fencing has been erected around the building with the existing signage also removed. The new store will create 45 new jobs at Central Six Retail Park. Aldi has also submitted an application for 10 extra servicing hours which will see the store open for longer, documents say. It will also provide improved choice for residents who live nearby. Aldi recently announced plans to open 100 new stores in the UK. It is also pledged to invest £1.3 billion in a bid to further grow its retail estate as the company continues to push ahead with plans to open an average of one new store every week, they say. A company spokesman said they were looking for sites large enough to accommodate a 20,000-feet store and around 100 dedicated parking spaces with plans to open new supermarkets in York, Vista and Birmingham. A young Coventry lad dropped out of college because it wasn't demanding enough and is now stunning his own dad with the work he is doing. Stevie Murphy joined his dad's company Planet Granite and started using the equipment there to make breathtaking creations. The Arley-based firm specialises in stone kitchen worktops and uses cutting-edge robot-led machinery to cut the natural minerals they select. But Stevie has begun to use the technology for a whole different purpose. He went about merging robots with 3D scanning, and so creating robots that instead of making kitchen worktops could make anything. Stevie's dad, Steve, said, Stevie is now the only person in the world doing this unbelievable stuff and he is only 17 years old. In addition to the tricks of the trade, he has picked up as a young engineer who has always taken a great interest in his dad's business. Stevie has spent hours on end researching the pioneering craft on YouTube and Google. Stevie's second ever sculpture was a huge four-ton Batman, his dad said. He carved it from a solid rock that had sat outside his home since he was born. He then scanned himself and made a statue of himself, which he took to the National Stone Show in London. The stone industry were amazed at what he had created in little under five days on the robot, so much so that he won the award for emerging talent, presented by the Stone Federation of Great Britain. Ahead of the first anniversary of the death of Queen Elizabeth II, and having read about Coventry City Council's desire for a statue to commemorate Her Majesty, Stevie set about creating a version, 
which is now in production. Although his pioneering ways are only just breaking through in the worlds of science and technology, Steve says his eldest son's work has already prompted celebrities and sports people to inquire about self-portraits. The robot he uses didn't even work until Stevie figured out all the wiring and reconfigured them. The staff at Planet Granite and everyone who sees what he is doing and has done are amazed, the proud dad said. And now next week, Margaret will be visiting St Mary's Guildhall in her tour of Coventry in 50 buildings. So this article from the Coventry Photograph is a fitting coincidence. Visiting Hidden Gem St Mary's Guildhall is a must when coming to Coventry. It's one of the finest surviving medieval guildhalls in the UK with over 700 years of history. But while it's right in the middle of the city, not everyone has taken the time to go inside. Located in Bailey Lane in the city centre, the site has great significance as a survivor of the English Civil War and the Blitz. It has acted as a centre of power in the UK, from housing the crown jewels to being the prison of Mary Queen of Scots and hosting iconic literary figures like George Eliot. Following a £6 million renovation, it has reopened as a visitor attraction which people can explore and also enjoy afternoon tea and an evening dining experience. It continues to be a central landmark for the city today and for the future. There are also many things that people may not know about St Mary's Guildhall. For instance, the medieval kitchen became a soup kitchen to feed the city's poor and destitute during the 1800s. And the armoury room became the weapons store for the city's defence following royalist attacks in the Civil War. The Guildhall has many fascinating stories, from being the seat of power where Coventry was ruled for over, where Coventry was ruled for over 700 years, to bring the home of, of a stunning tapestry, cultural performances such as Shakespeare's plays and many royal visitors. One reviewer said the Guildhall was an interesting and quirky little find, adding, it is typical of the period with low doors, wonky floors and steep spiral stairs. The main hall is lovely with a tapestry and a large stained glass window at one end and an interesting ceiling. Each room has something to see. The best, in my view, was the council chamber. Another said they tried to look for the ghost. This is a wonderful building with fabulous portraits. It's on two levels. We climbed up to the second level to the room with the sloping floor to see if the resident ghost would come out. No such luck. <laughs> A teenager was stabbed and a second was hit by a vehicle in a violent carjacking at a Coventry Park. Rapid response officers were sent to Cowden Hall Park Pavilion at around 8.30pm on Saturday following 999 calls from a number of worried members of the public. It is believed the two victims were approached by a group of men from another car. One of the victims was stabbed while the other was clipped by the attacker's car, a West Midlands police spokesperson said. The attackers stole the car that the victims had been in before both vehicles left the scene. Neither of the victims' injuries is believed to be life-threatening or life-changing. The force helicopter was seen in the skies over Dame Green and Radford for a prolonged period as police made a desperate search for the culprits. 
Police are now following up a number of lines of inquiry. A brilliant new addition has been added to Coventry's War Memorial Park this summer, a land train. The War Memorial Express land train offers a whistle-stop tour of the park. Also, the pop-up Golden Putter Golf Course will remain until towards the end of 2024 after a successful trial earlier this year. Emma Cosgrove, Visitor Centre Supervisor at Coventry City Council, explained the trial period has worked really well. It's a great addition to the park, and I think many visitors will be pleased that it is set to remain till September 2024. It's an accessible course, and the water features of natural planting all help with the way it looks. For an event space, this is a, is a, is portable as it is, is portable as it is impressive. Councillor Abdul Salman Khan, Deputy Council Leader at Coventry City Council, added, In Coventry, we are very proud of our parks and green spaces. These new attractions are a great addition to the many free activities that visitors can enjoy at both the Memorial Park and Kurabi Park, uh, and at the many other fabulous parks. The cost of, to try a round of mini-golf ranges from £7.50, upwards according to the number of people. Uh, to use land train, tickets are priced at £2.50 each for children and £3 for adults. To those who live in Coventry, it's no secret that the Coventry Transport Museum is a great day out. But it's even getting noticed further afield, as it was just ranked one of the top free things in the country to do for children. The list, compiled by Cash Float and based on a TripVisor data, ranked the Coventry Transport Museum as fourth in top three days out for kids and families. And another Coventry attraction, the Herbert Art Gallery and Museum, also made the list, coming in at 26th place. Right at the top of the list came the Big Pit National Coal Museum in Topham, while the rest of the top five included the Norfolk and Suffolk Aviation Museum, the Wallace Collection in London, and the National Museum of Scotland in Edinburgh. There is an array of interactive exhibits related to transport, and children can climb aboard some of the vehicles. There's even a 4D simulator. The Herbert, which came in 24th place overall, is currently home to many fascinating exhibitions on art, history and culture, all especially curated to be informative and accessible to young audiences. Just under two-thirds, which is 60% of reviewers, rated their visit five-star. Outlook News So that uh, completes the coverage of the local news uh, from uh, Elaine and myself. And as ever, we're going to move on to uh, another local thing, which is the Resource Centre here, and here is Jo. Well, hello. Thank you very much indeed. Hello, everybody. Nice to be back with you. Um, I am here because Hugh is not here. So Where is he? Hugh has gone on holidays ah, good. for two weeks, mm-hmm. which is well earned, I think. Yes. And they are travelling through France and then Spain. 
Very nice. So uh, a lot of driving, but I think they'll see lots of lovely sights. He, he won't have the horrible heat they've had either, will he? It'll be warm, know. I think, but don't won't have that horrible heat they had recently. No, I think that's gone, but we well, welcome a bit of heat here. We do. We? So <laughs> it's coming, it's coming. Today, Wednesday, is nice. Tomorrow might be okay. Yes. And then the weekend, we're back to where we were before. Oh, I suspect as much. Just a jet stream keeps moving left yeah, and right and up and down. Does. <laughs> we're just on the wrong side of it all, we aren't are, we? Yeah. Anyway, so Hugh is away this week and next week. He'll be right. back here at the Resource Centre from the 21st of August. And Rosie is also off this week. Uh, she's only off for one week, so she'll be back in on Monday the 14th. Uh, so in the meanwhile, they've left us to try and hold the fort. <laughs> Which I'm sure you are doing admirably well. Well, I'd like to we, so. We mention Rosie regularly, but not Tricia so much. Tricia has not been in the centre too so much. She's now mainly working over at the res- uh, the shop. In oh, Russia. she? Ah, oh, right. Yeah. Okay. She right. comes in for trustee meetings yes, and right. to other things, but uh, she's not regularly. Explains why here. I don't see her. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> um, so yes. Yeah, so uh, the other main things to uh, say today, I think, one is uh, raffle tickets are selling very well. <laughs> And we would love to sell loads more of them. So uh, if you can take books with you and get family and friends to buy them or give them to friends of theirs and get them to pay for it, that would be fabulous. So they're still in reception, um, trying to spread them around as best we can. Um, And as I said before, good prizes. How much? There were a pound a ticket, five pounds for a book of five. Um, yes, because I'm allowed to give six for five, are you? That's illegal, apparently. Uh, <laughs> right, yeah, it probably is with yes, the lottery, yeah. Yes, um, yeah. So if you do want to take books and sell them, make sure you get people to write their name and contact number on all of the stubs, every one of them, and then just bring the money and the uh, the large, the, the stub part of the ticket back yeah. in with us. When's, um, the, when's the draw? The draw is going to be, I think, on the 9th of September. Right, yeah. Uh, so, Lots of uh, time. Yeah. It's a fun thing. Good prizes, so Good. Uh, we'll, mm. we'll let you know when it's uh, being drawn. Um, the other things, yes, a uh, nice thing to tell you, the the new handrails in the back garden here at oh, the centre yes. are pretty much finished. Mm. I'd like to say a massive thank you to Jeff especially, and to Clive, who's a new volunteer, who's been helping Jeff with this project, and they've done a great job, been really persistent, and uh, I think I've had quite a few comments already mm, from people mm, saying they, do. they look very resplendent. They do, don't they? Mm. And lots of people are finding them easier to see than the red. Yes. So that's also yes. a plus. Yep. Yes. Um, and um, we'll tidy them up a bit. But we've also now got an extra rail around the back of the centre, uh, across the flower border to the right, across uh-huh. the bit where the car park is at the back. Yep. And it carries on as a new railing, a new handrail across the back of the Mary Beale building, building. Right. so along the side of the building mm. I should say, so anyone going out the back of the Mary Beale room, you've got mm. a rail that goes all the way round now, That's better. Uh, yep. that might be helpful for people with guide dogs especially um, they've let the guide dog off the leash, they've yes. got a handrail <laughs> to use, um, so really great job done I think there and we're very um, grateful to have that pretty much finished um, now the other big thing, it's, I've only got this to talk about now really, but it's quite important. The minibuses that we have here at the centre, as you know, they're in and out constantly, picking people up, dropping them home again. Uh, the old bus is now pretty old, <laughs> um, the original bus that we've had for many years, and it is getting more and more um, mm. elderly, mm. and the clutch has now decided to give up the ghost. Mm. So we're, we're running on borrowed time where the clutch is concerned. Mm-hmm. So we have had to book it into the garage next week. Um, and the garage will need it, we think, for at least three days. So 
limited availability. Well, we, we've, we've spent a lot, well, I've certainly spent yeah. a lot of time on this with Claire and Carl this week. Uh, we think we've got a plan B, which will work. So Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday, we won't have our usual this is next second week. bus. Yep. Next week, that's right. Uh, that would be the... What date is that going to be? But the 15th, 16th, 17th. In the teens, We have uh, rescheduled everything, and we think we're managing to cover everything. But we will, once or twice on Tuesday, we'll have a taxi, I think, running once or twice here or there. So Claire will let everybody know what's going on. Uh, but we are pretty confident we've got it all covered. Um Wednesday and Thursday, we will be borrowing the minibus from the Enterprise Club for two two of those days, and that helps us to cover yep. most of the runs that we need to cover. Yep. Um, so uh, just bear with us. If anything goes wrong or <laughs> things change for some reason at the last minute, we might have to ring you all up again. We've got um, some cross fingers and cross toes, don't we? Everything crossed, exactly. Uh, it's possible they might need it on Friday as well, but we'll cross that bridge when we get closer mm. to it. Yep. So we're yeah. hoping that we will be in and out as usual. You just might see a different bus yeah. picking you up. And that, that uh, once repaired, has got a fair bit of life left in it as a bus. As it's, well, it's having the clutch done. It's what, sorry? Got a fair bit of life left in it after the clutch has been um, done as well. I'm not sure I would say that with any confidence. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's going to be up and running. It'll be it? up that's and running and it should be, yeah. the repair yeah. should mean it can carry on for a while yet. But Good. we are thinking about what we do about replacing yeah. that old bus. Yeah. And um, oh, just to mention as well, the drivers will be the same drivers that you're used to. You oh, right. We you won't even have got a borrowed vehicle. Borrowed same, vehicle, yeah. but the so same drivers. Right. So you'll see Carl out on the road a bit more next week. So if there's any problems with that or any worries, give us a call. But you can't, uh, Claire will be ringing everybody as usual to confirm their okay. pickup times. Good. And that's it for me, really. Thank Excellent. you very much, Thank everybody. You. My okay. best to everyone. I'll see you soon. Soon is going to be next week, in fact, isn't it? Soon will be next week. Actually, actually, wait, I'll start soon. thinking about that you now. Not here again. <laughs> Good. Thank you very much, Thank Jeff. you. Uh, which, of course, now takes us to uh, have we got any uh, announcements? And our only announcement this week, as, as usual, is uh, sunrise and sunset. Um, days are getting shorter. 5.34 in the morning is when the, the sun, well, the clouds come up, shall we say, <laughs> uh, and uh, it disappears at 8.51 in the evening. Now, uh, Sarah's got a reminder for you about bands in the park. Hi, it's Sarah here again with your second set of bands in the park. Don't forget... They, they're all this 2 o'clock till half past 3, although I think the last one I'm going to give you may be slightly different. They're all free and seats are available. So, resuming after a very short break in the War Memorial Park on Sunday the 13th of August, you can hear the AD Concert Band. Mm-hmm. And then in Norse Mill Park on Sunday the 20th of August, you can hear Non-Stop Bop. Now, I heard Non-Stop Bop last year in Spencer Park, and I have to say they were very good. Then on the 27th of August, in Spencer Park, on my doorstep, 
they have the Jones Jazz Orchestra. So that's the 27th of August. And then there is a big gap because this one is running conjunction with the Heritage Open days. So is why I think the time may be different. In Caledon Castle Park, but not until September the 17th, you can hear the Cobbington Silver Band. So again, you've got a very wide range of concerts there. They're all free. Seats are available. Take a picnic. So what's keeping you? Bye. And from that, we move on to Sarah, of course, with her sports report for this week. Outlook Sport. Well, hello there, listeners, and welcome to this week's sport. Now, as I said last week, on Sunday, Coventry City started off their season with an away match at Leicester, who were relegated last year. Only 26 miles up that M69, and indeed we took our full complement of away fans. Hmm, I listened to the first half on CWR, and it was nil-nil at half-time. I made the proverbial cup of coffee in the half-time gap and by the time I went back it was 1-0 to City. Whoa! Apparently Carl McFadsey had nudged in, oh, one of our backs, had nudged in a goal from quite close to score that vital goal. However, Talk Sport, who I listened to the second half of the match on, then gave City the kiss of death. Oh, well, the way Coventry are playing, they should be three or four up. And as for Mark Robbins, he's made fantastic choices. Huh. Well, anyway, they scored twice. And Mark Robbins did make quite a few substitutions. But the problem was, I felt, that he included so many of our new signings, including the guy we got, the American guy who's been playing in Turkey, who only actually came to the city on Friday afternoon. Anyway, he knows better than me. But keeping it local, Leamington played Long Eaton and won 1-0. You may remember Leamington were relegated last season, so come on ye breaks. Stratford, however, played Needham Market and won six goals to one. And to think at one stage last year, it looked as if Stratford were going to be relegated. Now, I can tell you that Nuneaton Borough played Berkhamstead and they won, but I can't tell you the score because they haven't actually updated their Facebook site. And just to keep it local, Rugby Borough Women, formerly known as Coventry United Women, 
haven't actually started their season yet. So those are probably the four local teams I shall concentrate the most on. Meanwhile, that takes me nicely onto the Women's World Cup. Well, you may remember last week I told you how the USA had won the Women's World FIFA Cup four times out of the eight times played and Germany had won it twice. Well, neither of them are now in the running. Germany failed to make it beyond the group stage into the last 16 and the USA were famously knocked out yesterday as I speak by Sweden on penalties and a very tight goal line decision had it crossed, had it not crossed who knows but Sweden got through so and I must stop saying so today England played Nigeria and oh my gosh, what an uncomfortable watch it was. I was so glad I was actually watching it in delay. Well, I'd recorded it because I'd been planning to be out. Now, Nigeria came out like bats out of heck and hit the woodwork almost straight away, by which we mean it hit the golf frame and was so nearly a goal and they had several more chances before half time but then the commentator calmly said well Serena will sort it out Serena being our manager well she didn't really because Nigeria came out and started the second half exactly the same as they'd begun the match by Hitting the woodwork again. Then in the 87th minute of 90, it got worse because our young rising star, Lauren James, was sent off for literally stamping on an opponent. Anybody else remember the days when this happened to David Beckham? Mind you, it didn't do him any harm, did it, with his late career? But anyway, we got another three minutes plus injury time to make it full time. But then, of course, because it was still nil-nil, we had an extra 30 minutes. And somehow we managed to cling on. Actually, I thought it was rather strange but Serena had to alter our team round once Lauren had been sent off to fill the gap. And to be honest, we played much better. Why couldn't we have played like that before Lauren was sent off? Anyway, 30 minutes of very squeaky backside time and it remained nil-nil. Penalties! Oh, don't England love penalties? Not. England kicked first. Reliable Georgia Stanway. Up she popped. You know, she's our number one penalty taker. But she missed. But then so did Nigeria. Still nil-nil. 
then our second striker scored and their second striker missed so 1-0 then it went 2-1 then 3-2 which meant if our final goal taker scored we'd won well up stepped Chloe Kelly remember Chloe from Euro 2021 she's the one who calmly scored the winning goal in the final and she scored 4-2 meaning Nigeria had they taken and scored their final penalty could still only have made it 4-3 so that was the official score 4-2 on penalties oh. and we go on to play I believe either Colombia or Jamaica I mean I have to say Jamaica are an inspiration they had to crowdfund in other words seek people's sponsorship money really to fund their trip to the world's I know there were certain raised eyebrows when the Worlds were increased to 32 teams, but my gosh, hasn't it been worth it? Some of the, shall we say, less usual names that it has thrown up. However, one of them who is still in the tournament are the hosts who are Australia and their team, the Matildas. Please don't let us play them. Please, or at least not until the final. We'll take them in the final, but we want to bring football home. Which takes me on to netball rather smoothly. You'll see why in a minute. Well, last week I said that if England played Australia in the semis, I'd actually start to watch it. Well, we didn't play them in the semis, but we played them in the final. Now, it was our first time ever that we'd managed to reach the final of the World Cup. They'd won previously 11 times. After the first quarter, it was pretty level. Well, the score was level on 13 all. But then gradually Australia drew away and it ended up 61-45 to them. <sighs> the one thing I will say is that the netball that was played yesterday ain't anything like the netball we used to play at school. I mean, all of the players are like bean poles, whereas our goalkeeper was as wide as she was tall. And I, at five foot now, <laughs> that's all folks, was goal shooter. And it is so fast. And they have something called a turnover. I mean, I'm used to a turnover either being something you have on a pudding dish or being a moving rugby. But hey-ho, you have turnovers in netball now. Apparently, too. Now, Glasgow has been playing host as well to the World Cycling Championships. 
Now, I'm not going to read out all the names of the medalists, although I hope next week to perhaps bring you an overall tally. But Great Britain, as we compete in the World Cycling Championships, have been doing rather well on the road, on the track, and today on the BMX. And the great thing is, this means that a number of our cyclists have already automatically qualified for Paris Olympics next year. Particularly well done to the, the women on their tandems in the B1 class on the track for picking up gold. I mean, the thought of the speeds that you can get on a tandem riding round on that quite small little track. Ooh, terrifying. Now, this weekend wasn't a parade behind Max Verstappen in the F1 Grand Prix. Not that Max didn't win, but the F1 guys are all on holiday now. They've taken their summer vacation and will resume at the end of August. Big congratulations to British tennis player. In fact, he's a local lad, Dan Evans, who won the Washington City Open. And I'm spelling city, C-I-T-I, so I assume it's the sponsors. Not only was it an ATP-ranked competition, one of the big boys' ATP competitions, but it was his biggest ever win in his now reasonably longish career. And it wasn't just a, oh, well, who turned up. He actually beat Dimitrov in the semi-finals. So well done there, that Dan. Which takes me on nicely to my and finally slot. Not a funny this week, but hopefully one that will make you happy. Emma Raducanu has posted a video of herself on the practice court for the first time after having two wrists and one ankle surgery in May. Obviously, she won't be back in time for the tournament in the States, which starts quite soon. But Emma, you are a very young woman at 20. No rush. Just come back at your own pace. And that has been your sport. Have a good week. Bye. And that was Sarah with her sports report. It's good to know that Emma is uh, coming coming good, hopefully again, back in practice. Uh, she did very well when she started off, but has uh, had a bit of a check career since, possibly. But there it. We'll see more of her, we hope. Lovely girl. And from sport, of course, we go today with your postbag. This is Postbag. Join in the discussion. Hello there. Welcome to your postbag. We begin with Bob Syme replying to Graham Whale 
and Carol Bloxham, who gave some very helpful advice about mobile phones. Here's Bob. Hello. I'd just like to thank Graham and Carol, Carol Bloxham, replying to my query about the mobile phones. It's the smartphone I was asking about, actually. And Graham says they're quite big. I've always had a, a mobile phone for the last 32 years, actually. I used to have a Nokia, but I stick with um, a Doro clam phone because it just fits in my pocket. But I've never actually had hands-on a smartphone. And I have since felt on uh, my cousin's house a smartphone. I was surprised how big and heavy they are, so... I think I'll give that a miss. Or we'll contact or go up to actually the resource centre on a Tuesday. No problem to get there and uh, check what the phones they have. Thank you, Bob. As Carol said, the gadget morning, Tuesday mornings at the resource centre, can be very helpful. Tell your fellow listeners what gadgets you use. It's such a great thing to share information and so helpful. Julia's friend Jen says, It's a shame more listeners don't contribute to Postbag. Yes, it is a shame, Jen. And it's a fantastic thing to do. And it's so easy. You can ring the Resource Centre on 024 76 717 522 and press 5 for Coventry's Talking Newspaper and leave a message or in any other way you prefer. Julia sets a fine example. This is her latest report entitled Mrs. Harris Went to Paris to Buy a Dior Frock. She wanted red but bought green. Oh, what an awful shock. That was a film that we went to see with Wendy the Warden. Sally and Mary came too. I liked the film because it was about dresses, and I wear a dress sometime, but don't tell my friend John because I don't even let him see me in a dress. Sally liked the film so much that she cried because it had a happy ending when that nice Mr. Dior gave Mrs. Harris a nice new red dress because the green one had caught fire after Mrs. Harris danced too close to a candle. I hope you're all listening carefully. There'll be a test after this. Anyway, we had drinks and ice cream and popcorn and then there was a raffle. The prize was a silver necklace with three lucky charms in it and guess who won? No, it wasn't my friend John because he wasn't there and it wasn't Mrs. Harris, Wendy the Warden, Mary or Sally. No, it was me. I won it and it fits me perfectly and it makes me look like a princess. Julia. Now, I said there'd be a test after. The three questions. Who designed Mrs. Harris's frock? Who was soppy and cried after the film? What did we eat with our drinks and ice cream? Thanks, Julia. Send in your answers for next time. Julia makes a lot of effort going to private English stroke computer lessons at her own expense with John and spending some of the time doing a report for postbag. So please make an effort and support Julia by having a go at her quiz. 
And it's nice that you've talked about going to see a film. When audio description was launched at the Odeon Cinema in Coventry, and centre users were invited to see the film Wimbledon free, Eric Sayce said he was looking forward to going to the cinema with his grandchildren and said, use it or lose it. There is audio description on every screen at the Odeon and certain screens at the showcase. Just ask for the headsets as you go in and a voice through the headsets will describe the action for you and help you enjoy the film. Have you tried it? Give it a go. And there's also an outing to the IMAX cinema with Resource Centre. So inquire about that. Uh, now, when there were silent films, a pianist played the appropriate piece of music to suit the action. Doreen Hilton talked about learning the piano recently, and it prompted Graham to talk about the stride piano technique. Yes, regarding learning the piano, um, I've never been able to master stride piano, or vamping as it's known. This is where, um, this is used often in old sort of jazz records where uh, you hear the sort of, I can't, I can't demonstrate it, I'm nowhere near the piano, but it's sort of boom, choo, boom, choo, boom, choo, boom, choo. You hit the bass note with your little finger and then you move your hand up pretty quickly to strike the intermediate chord to create that sort of, that sort of rhythm. And, you know, you can't, you can't uh, feel the keyboard as you take your hand up. He's got to go, quickly to get there in time and I don't understand how visually impaired people <laughs> manage it they do I've heard some very good visually impaired musicians uh, do that sort of thing I mean George Shearing is a good example for a start probably too good of an example but um, I could never master stride piano I could never master it without a few bum notes that is thank you Graham the piano teacher my brother and I went to gave us both up as a bad job my late brother Bob became a professional musician and had his own unique style of running his left hand up and down the keyboard. This is an excerpt from his own composition. often a piano bar at hotels on holiday. Edwina though advises you to wear a hat when you go outside in the sunshine. Hi everybody, I'm sure I bet you're all eagerly getting ready to go away, especially now that the children are on their big long seven week holiday. I just wanted to mention that it has been put as a warning in the paper for those people that are going abroad wear a hat the warning is that some places can be as high as 48 degrees which is 118 Fahrenheit that is some heat so do make sure you wear a hat Take care, everybody. 
Have a lovely holiday. Bye. And Edwina mentioned to me that listener and our friend uh, Dorothy Davis always used to wear a peaked cap. So that's wise advice there. Thanks, Edwina. Bob Syme, though, points out a danger to visually impaired people about planting with bamboo canes that Edwina was recommending recently. Edwina mentioned about canes, bamboo canes in her garden. I would strongly be against using a bamboo cane in the garden. I'm talking through experience. Uh, you should grow chrysanthemums by the hundreds and use lots of bamboo canes. Unless they've got a top on them, a protective top, they can be very dangerous for a visually impaired person. I use my canes, if I'm using canes at all, to put rows of, um, instead of a line, I use an eight-foot cane down, peg it in position, and then I plant wherever along that line, then move the bamboo cane that way. Don't have a bamboo cane sticking up, because if you can easily forget that it's there, and go down to bed and down, pick something up, and unless you've got a protective cover on the end, you could stick it in your face or in your eye, it could be very dangerous. I would definitely be against that. Yes, please bear Bob's warning in mind. I noticed when we went to the resource centre allotment once that there are bamboo canes where they have stuck the tops into tennis balls to prevent being poked in the eyes or face if visually impaired people bend over them from saving damage to the face and eyes to saving the planet. Chris and Claire have been taking part in a relay race called Running Out of Time. Here's Chris speaking at the summer fate. All sorts of modes of transport, they ran, walked, cycled, skied and paddled in one instance I believe uh, from Ben Nevis um, in, in Scotland, yeah Scotland, uh, to Big Ben in London. Um, so Claire and I ran, there's a, a little six kilometre section so it's for, for the, the people in miles it's about four miles isn't it, um, from Newbold Common in Leamington uh, through a load of lovely greenery along the side of the canal um, to Warwick Castle ending up there's uh, quite a nasty hill at the end of the two castles run which we did it earlier on uh, sorry well after, we did in June actually um, and at the end of, of that race it's awful because you, you've come through the sweltering heat and then there's this big hill anyway we ran up that um, and we passed the baton to this fellow on a bike and he went off but it was lovely we because all our friends were uh, in work and stuff we went on to the, the British Blind Sports um, guide running database and met this lovely lady called Sarah who um, got her lovely friend Jamie to come and guide run us um, so Sarah and McClare Jane ran with me um, the, the, ra the run was led by a lady called Claire Thomas and her family and um, Claire was a, a vegan runner which you could tell straight away because you know traditionally in films Dave when you got hippies and they're all hey man how you doing yeah. That's how she spoke. And I said, I've got to ask you, are you a vegan runner? Oh, gosh, how did you know? Because <laughs> you just talk like a vegan runner. And she'd got the hydration pack, the first aid kit, all that sort of thing. She said, oh, I've got to have some photos, man. So we had some photos with her, uh, it's her dad and his wife. So we'd never met any of these people, and it was amazing, you know. 
Finally, we have a lovely tribute to Olga Miller from Sarah. I was very sad the other week to hear Hugh announce the death of Olga Miller. I knew Olga from the Thursday IT group. Indeed, we used to work together when she was writing her long letters to her nephew Jackson. But what made Olga so special was she had one of those smiles that literally you only had to look at to feel much better and her wicked sense of humour. My gosh, she and me didn't have a laugh as well. Well, Olga, cheers. I shall drink one of your favourite G&T tipples in your name. God bless you, Olga. You certainly cheered me up on many an occasion. Thank you, Sarah. That was lovely. And thank you for your messages this week. A recent survey has shown that people over 65 have been watching less of what's known as live television, but turning to streaming services, uh, please explain that to me, and the internet instead. There has been an upsurge, though, in listening to local radio. So is there a reason for all this? Do you, what do you watch or listen to? And have you, are you watching less television these days? So, please let's hear from you next time. Bye for now. This is Outlook. You can contact Postbag. Our website is www.talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Our email address is postbag at talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Join in the discussion on Postbag. And that was Dave there with your postbag for this week. Uh, we're nearly at the end of David McGrory's book on Coventry in 50 Buildings, those buildings which uh, define our city's history. But for the penultimate building, Margaret goes to Little Park Street and Kirby House. All that is left of Kirby House is its facade and remains of some internal walls at the front. The actual facade may have been added in 1700 and appears to have been remodelled in 1735. It is likely that it was added on to a building dating from the 16th or 17th century. Inside, Jacobean panelling and a staircase back this up. It takes its name from Thomas Holston Kirby, a solicitor who acquired the building in 1874. In 1959, it was the office of another solicitor who, after being quoted £10,000 for the building's restoration, notified the council of its intent to demolish. The council immediately put a preservation order on the building. In 1964, the council acquired the building as a possible new mayor's parlour but after having it surveyed, they found its restoration too costly and requested the removal of the preservation order. Four years later, the building was in a dangerous condition and was held up by scaffolding. Councillors continued arguing whether to save or demolish it. In December 1969, they applied for its demolition. This led to a public inquiry, and after three years, the Department of the Environment refused the order. Over the following eight years, 
the building rotted. It was during this period that the Coventry Society was founded to fight to save what was left of it. Finally, the council sold it on to a developer, who then sold it on to a builder, W.A. Blackburn, who with architects Crouch, Butler and Savage and historic consultants R.S. Melville, began restoration in 1980. Salvaging what little was left and using original photographs to restore and reproduce the inside, they restored the ancient panelling and brought this fine building back to life. The building has since been used by a Sun Life, a solicitor and the Citizens Advice Bureau. And next time for the last of Coventry's architectural gems, Margaret will be visiting the glorious St Mary's Guildhall in Bailey Lane. At long last, we may be experiencing a bit of summer. It doesn't sound as though it's going to last too long. And one of the season's traditional treats is an ice cream cone from the ice cream van, with its joyful jingles bringing a connection with the past. Sue now tells us more in this article by Claire Finney. It's the siren call of summer, the oral equivalent of the scent of the barbecue and the feel of sound between your toes. No sooner has the mercury tipped tentatively above 15 than the ice cream van's jingle run rings out across the country's streets, tempting children and adults alike with the promise of something sweet and cold. Or at least it did and has done since the early 20th century. Yet growing concern about the pollution ice cream vans cause led Camden Council to bar them from 40 of its streets in 2019. Now Greenwich Council looks set to follow suit. Stationary ice cream vans are welcome at designated locations in the borough, the council explained, but Itinerant ice cream van trading, defined as trading from a vehicle which goes from place to place, can cause unacceptable levels of nuisance, as well as having negative impact on air quality from engine idling in sensitive locations. Don't get me wrong, I have no appetite for air pollution. I have been known to ask the drivers of parked cars whose engines are running to switch them off. But to point the finger at ice cream vans, when oil companies are pocketing record profits unscathed by windfall taxes, feels like fiddling while London burns. Yet this isn't just about profit and who to blame for our burning world. It is that the ice cream van holds such sentimental value. They provide a connection, not just to this summer now, but the summers of our great-grandparents, for whom it meant big blocks of vanilla. They remind us of our grandparents, for whom it meant Mr Whippy. And of our parents, who witnessed the birth of such novelties as Strawberry Split, Cornetto and Fab. The ice cream van is one of the few true culinary connections across generations. One of my earliest memories is of my granddad pressing a crumpled fiver, imagine, into my hand and of running to a van to order an oyster for him and my grandma and a calippo for myself. A few weeks ago, on summer's first truly hot day, my boyfriend and I passed an ice cream van 
and couldn't help but order two calippos, despite them being £3.50 each. When later his mum rightly pointed out we would have paid much less if we'd waited for a supermarket, we realised that it wouldn't have been the same. It was the moment that mattered. The excitement of hearing, then seeing the van, which at any second could have driven off, but seemed to be there just for us as we were passing. It was the childlike joy of realising that yes, we would like an ice cream, and then debating which one to have. In a world in which such treats are all too readily available, an ice cream van reminds us to treat them as a treat. Not an everyday commodity, something supermarket ads and deals often imply. Their itinerancy is part of that, for the best moments are but fleeting. A stationary van or shop has no need to jingle its arrival. Its customers will not feel excited to be in the right place at the right time. The ice cream van has a right to roam the streets, spreading sweet, serendipitous joy. Ah, the joys of a licky ice cream cone. Next, Bill concludes a story from the Express, which he started last week, about the US adventurer who claimed to have reached the Earth's northernmost point, and the Fleet Street reporter who smelt a rat. Gibbs was right. When his article was published in the Daily Chronicle in London the following day, it caused a sensation, news of which soon reached Denmark. With Copenhagen in a state of excitement, Gibbs found himself suddenly transformed into the most unpopular person in the city. He was booed by fellow diners in a restaurant, twice accused of lying, and even challenged to a duel by one of Cook's supporters. More than the hostility of the Danish public, he was troubled by how many people seemed convinced Cook was telling the truth. As he tried to build a case back his belief that Cook was lying, a banquet was held in Cook's honour. He was invited to dine with the Danish king and queen. The University of Copenhagen gave him an honorary degree and the Danish Royal Geographical Society awarded him a prestigious gold medal. With each scientist or explorer who declared their confidence in Cook's claim, Gibbs found himself worrying that perhaps he had made the wrong judgment. Perhaps, he feared, the man he was accusing of fraud really was one of the greatest explorers the world had ever seen. But over the week they spent in Copenhagen, his daily articles gradually chipped away at the credibility of Cook's claim. These combined with new questions about Cook's earlier claim to have been the first person to reach the top of Mount McKinley, now called Denali, in Alaska, mean that by the time he left Denmark for America, there were widespread doubts about whether he had reached the pole. Back in New York, Cook was greeted as a returning hero, driven in a huge convoy through packed streets, with people even crowding onto rooftops to see him. As his car 
asked his former home in Brooklyn, Brock was amazed to see a huge wooden arch had been constructed over the road in his honour. At its centre was a picture of him, along with the words, We believe in you. Meanwhile, Gibbs was now back in London, following events from across the Atlantic. Having staked his reputation on Cook being proved a liar, his whole career now depended on whether Cook would be able to produce credible evidence that he really had reached the pole. Finally, in December 1909, Cook's evidence arrived at the University of Copenhagen, which had assembled a commission of experts to assess his claim. The conclusion was damning. There cannot, in the material which has been submitted to us for examination, be found any proof whatsoever of Dr. Cook having reached the North Pole. This was the moment the world at large abandoned its belief that Cook might have reached the Pole. His Inuit companions from the expedition also later claimed they had stopped short hundreds of miles from the Pole. Cook would spend the rest of his life trying to persuade the world that he really had reached the Pole. His efforts were dealt a further blow when he was convicted to fraud and spent six years in jail his role in an oil company. Even today, it is not clear who was the first to reach the pole. Most experts think the claim is that of Roald Amundsen, who flew over it in an airship in 1926. Ibs had staked his credibility on Cook being a liar, and now Cook's claim was dismissed, he suddenly found himself established as one of Britain's leading journalists. The story of Gibbs's intuition in suspecting Cook and the courage and doggedness with which he pursued him was repeated so often in the newsrooms and pubs of Fleet Street that it became part of journalistic legend. Fifteen years later, the Daily Express looked back on his reporting as triumph of intuition and perseverance. A history of British journalism published after the Second World War remembered that Fleet Street felt he had shown great courage in cabling his conclusions as well as astuteness in forming them so quickly. The triumph of Gibbs's reporting of Cook provided a platform him to become one of Britain's greatest journalists. He reported on the First World War, was the first journalist to get the news of the death of Edward VII, and got an exclusive interview with the lover of notorious murderer Dr. Crippen. While his fellow journalists celebrated the brilliance of his reporting from Copenhagen, this would always modestly emphasise the role good fortune had played in his success, from the moment Dagmar Rasmussen walked into the cafe on his first evening in Copenhagen. It is nearly always luck that is one of the essential elements in journalistic success, and sometimes, as in a game of cards, it deals a surprisingly fine hand, he wrote. The skill is in making the best use of this chance, 
and keeping one's nerve in a game of high stakes. Truly it, the Cook story, was a queer, exciting incident in my journalistic life, and looking back upon it, I marvel at my luck. Not all was what it seemed, or what it claimed. We're all encouraged to have our five a day, which of course can include fruit, and what better for a quick burst of energy than a banana? Sheila reads extracts from an article in the Sunday Times magazine about this favourite fruit, written by Harry Wallop. The banana. It is, quite simply, Britain's favourite supermarket item, put into shopping baskets more often than a loaf of Warburton's, a nine-pack of loo roll, or even a two-pinter of semi-skimmed milk. The average household bought 24.8 kilograms of them over the past 52 weeks, or about 174 bananas, according to Cantar, the market research company that analyses the shopping baskets of 30,000 families across the country. They are delicious and easy to eat. They are often the first thing you eat when you are being weaned, and the last thing you can eat when you've lost your teeth, says Louise Gravy, author of Avocado Anxiety, a book that tells the stories behind Stayport Grocery items. The astonishing success of this faintly comical fruit, so prevalent that the kitchenware retailer Lakeland's most popular item for years was a plastic banana guard to protect commuters at lunchtime snack, says much about Britain's eating habits. It also reveals a lot about our dependence on highly sophisticated supply chains that have been honed over decades to do one thing and one thing very well, provide cheap food all year round. It is only when we glimpse an empty shelf that we start to question the security of our food supply. The worry is, after the tomato shortage, could bananas be next? The global banana industry is huge. Last year, 134 million tonnes of the fruit were grown, according to a French agricultural research centre, making it the 12th biggest crop on earth. Unlike most fruit, it crops 52 weeks of the year, flourishing in any country near the equator, with the five biggest exporters being Ecuador, the Philippines, Guatemala, Costa Rica and Colombia. Maersk, one of the world's biggest shipping container companies, estimates that in 2021 it transported 27.5 billion bananas around the world. Despite all the refrigeration and fuel that it requires, Professor Mike Berners-Lee of Lancaster University, an expert on carbon footprints, estimates that a Latin American banana bought at a UK supermarket is responsible for 0.7 of a kilogram of CO2 equivalent emissions, quite a bit more than a homegrown apple at 0.3, but significantly less than Spanish grapes at 1.1 and Scottish strawberries grown in polytunnels at 1.7. Why have bananas become such a phenomenon? They are popular because they are so very cheap. That consistency is why people buy it so very often. You know what you're getting, you know exactly what it will taste like. The uniformity of the Cavendish banana is rooted in biology. Every banana is a clone of another. The fruit grows not on trees, but on plants. To create a new one, you take a cutting from an existing plant. 
and there is a chance that the bananas you buy at Asda or Sainsbury's or indeed in France or the United States descend from the very first banana plant to be designed, designed a Cavendish cultivated at Chatsworth House in Derbyshire. In the 19th century, the vast Chatsworth estate, the seat of the Duke of Devonshire, was home to the world's largest greenhouse, built in 1832 by the head gardener, Joseph Paxton. He would go on to build the Crystal Palace for the Great Exhibition in London in 1851. But at Chatsworth, Paxton was encouraged to track down and nurture the rarest species by his employer, William Cavendish, the sixth Duke of Devonshire. He spent £10, which is nearly £1,000 in today's money, on a banana plant he believed came from China. He says, this is new, I haven't seen it before. And Joseph Paxton is one of those horticulturalists who is naming plants that are new to cultivation in Europe at the time. He named it the Musa Cavendishai in honour of his boss, and it rapidly became a sensation. Paxton declared that the flavour of the fruit, when in perfection, combines the pineapple, the melon and the pear. And soon cuttings made their way to other greenhouses in Britain, and then on to Tahiti and Samoa by colonialists keen to cultivate cash crops. Every banana tastes exactly the same. They are genetically identical. They grow the same, they fruit the same, they taste the same. But because there's no variation in the genetics, if a disease comes along, there's no natural variation of the resistance. And this is not a theoretical risk. A disease caused by soil-borne fungus, known as tropical race 4, has been slowly spreading through banana plantations, particularly in the Philippines, but it has also arrived in Latin America, causing leaves to wilt and the crops to fail. The Cavendish banana was discovered to be more resistant to previously troublesome diseases back in the 1950s and it was discovered that you could pick the fruit green, pack it into refrigerated chips and it would arrive in Britain in perfect condition to be ripened. That's why the Cavendish variety became dominant. It is so stable and the entire system has been engineered to suit it. All the boxes, the conveyor belts, everything is designed for this specific size to banana. Any replacement variety needs to behave like a Cavendish, otherwise the money-making commodity won't work. This becomes immediately apparent on a visit to one of Europe's largest banana ripening warehouses, just off junction 2 of the M6 near Coventry. It is run by Fife's, the biggest importer of bananas into the UK. In this warehouse, 2,000 tonnes of bananas come and go every week, arriving from the dockyards of Southampton and Portsmouth, and leaving to head to the distribution warehouses of the Co-op, Marks & Spencer, Aldi, Morrison's, Ocado or Iceland. In total, Fives sells 43 million bananas a week to the UK retailers. They arrive green and leave almost yellow or rather they arrive in a shade designation 1 on the ripening banana colour chart and leave between 3 which is more green than yellow and 4 which is more yellow than green. The bananas have spent two weeks travelling across the Atlantic refrigerated at exactly 13.3 degrees centigrade. At this temperature they remain in perfect green condition for up to seven weeks. Once the bananas arrive in Coventry, they ripen the fruit by lifting the temperature slightly, waking it up, taking it from 13.3 to 14.5 or 15 degrees centigrade. 
at that sort of temperature, the pores on the skin of the fruit open and it becomes receptive to ethylene. This is the gas that is pumped into the narrow, tall ripening rooms in which the bananas spend most of their week in the Coventry warehouse. The Cavendish has flourished for 200 years and dominated our diets for the past 60. For it to survive another 60, we need to change radically how we see this fruit, not as a cheap lunchbox filler, but a remarkable product of a global system. As delicious as they are, we might need to swallow the unpalatable truth that we should pay more for the amazing banana. Bananas, still uh, an inexpensive fruit and of course very nourishing. I'm sure there are a number of us who sometimes go out by themselves for a special treat of a meal cooked for them in a pub or restaurant. But why can singles pay double to eat alone is the question raised by Francesca Spector, and this is read by Sue. I dine out alone a lot, whether it's a steaming bowl of ramen near my office or a lavish three-course meal on holiday in Florence. Beyond convenience or necessity, I eat alone because I enjoy the mindful, self-indulgent experience. Having written a book about being alone, I believe moments of solitude are integral to a good life, whatever your age or relationship status. But as a solo diner, I've often faced discrimination. From being asked to leave a cafe because I was reading the weekend papers on my iPad, we like our customers to chat to a restaurant in Lisbon where a trio of waiters conspired against me, at first refusing to seat me and then failing to provide a menu. Where are your friends? That's not to mention the occasional stare or pitying stage whisper from fellow diners who can't understand why a 31-year-old woman would be choosing to eat by herself. That is why I was shocked but unsurprised to hear that Alex Dilling, a two Michelin starred restaurant in Mayfair, which offers a modern take on French gastronomic cuisine, has begun double charging solo diners. While its tasting menu weighs in at an already steep £165, Diners eating alone are required to pay a minimum charge of £330, the cost of a table for two. Come the 18th of August, this will rise to £390. Way to take the joy out of a meal for one. The single supplement, a term used to describe any premium surcharge on doing things alone is nothing new. Hotel rooms have long been priced based on two sharing. While live aloners like myself only receive a 25% discount on council tax, meaning we pay more per person than a couple sharing. Yet, while dining solo might have previously come with its own subtle hidden costs, over-ordering from a menu not designed for solos, the restaurant surcharge is a new beast. When I contacted the Alex Dilling restaurant, Victoria Shepherd, the co-owner, defended the policy. It was 
started in mid-June due to a surge in solo diner demand, with justification that it is an independent business with an intimate dining room that has a maximum of 34 covers with all tables at full capacity. I sympathise with the stress of running a business and no one is denying that restaurant closures are a real threat in the hospitality world. Something that Chef Dilling, whose restaurant The Greenhouse was a pandemic fatality, knows all too well. This is particularly true when you factor in the cost of living. According to Victoria's statement, the increasing supplier costs and London rate and rents contributed to the solo surcharge decision. But solos have long been bearing the brunt of such surcharges, I suspect, because they're an easy target. Turning up alone at a restaurant, still a relatively uncommon phenomenon, at least in the UK, you're already on the back foot. And there is precedent in other areas, such as hotels, for assuming everyone is coming, at minimum, in a couple. However, the constant rejection of the solo diner, by rude waiters, by pitying glances or by expensive bills, reeks of playground bullying when eating alone in the school canteen made you a social pariah. But we're all grown-ups now, and lots of us recognise that solo dining can be a perfectly valid and enjoyable decision. Elsewhere in the world, this is actively embraced. For instance, through countertop seating, ubiquitous in Japan, or the communal bench-style seating offered at the British-Japanese-style chain Wagamama. Then there are the one-off initiatives, such as a move by McDonald's Philippines, which last year launched a singles VIP area for solo diners. Many leading London restaurants, from St John branches to London Bridges Padella, offer counter-style seating that's apt for solos, together with traditional tables. If it is turning a profit that's a concern, creative dining solutions are available that embrace society in its fullness, solos, couples, groups and families alike. For restaurateurs implementing a single supplement to protect their business, there's a final point worth considering. Solo diners like me can be some of your most valuable customers, although not perhaps being racking up the same size bill as a table of ten. Those of us eating alone tend to be efficient, polite and grateful for good service. That's not to mention that a positive experience will probably turn us into a returning customer. We'll bring our friends. Oh, and let's not forget the odd solo food critic in disguise. Overcharging us, or indeed not accommodating us in the first place, may seem like a smart business strategy, but in the long term, it's short-sighted. In recent months, Dave, as you probably noticed, has been getting out and about much more. And recently, he took a Harry Shaw day trip to the Bury and East Lancashire Railway. Hello there. I've decided to go on a day trip with Harry Shaw to the Bury and the East Lancashire Steam Railway. So, I thought he'd like to join me. So, OK, come along. 
Thank you, sweet. I'm in um, Bowie Transport Museum near the railway station, and who am I speaking to? My name is Paul Clark. I'm here with my wife Susan. And where are you from? We're both from Carlisle. We've been there since uh, August the 10th, 1990. Wow. We, we moved from Milton Keynes to Carlisle. Yes. How long have you been interested in uh, the railways, particularly steam railways? Steam since I was a boy. When I was born in 1949. My mother used to take us to her hometown of Whittle, Whittlesea near Peterborough and that introduced me to the steam engine <laughs> between King's Cross and Peterborough and that's how I got hooked on them. Okay. So, um, there was a young, young family in the train we'd just been on today, enthralled by going through two tunnels yeah. and we as children, myself and my, my three sisters, used to count the tunnels between King's Cross and Hitchin and there were nine. Well, there were 30 odd miles, 39 tunnels. Yeah. And there were lots of huge vehicles here, like buses, lorries, a big crane, and vans, etc. And a tractor. I'm going on a lovely coach now, and there's an advert by the side of it. I can go to Blackpool really, at 9 a.m., 5 shillings. More come 7 shillings. Sounds okay to me. Okay, right, I'm going on the coach right now. Hello. Hello there. Yeah, hello there. Can you talk about your bus? I understand you own it, please. Yes, well, I am the name? current owner. My name is Paul Blackburn. Yeah. And I own this coach. I've owned it for about 13 years. Yeah. But it was created by a gentleman called Haddock. Yeah, David Haddock, yeah. Uh, he, was, he was an enthusiast because he'd been on holiday with his parents for many, many years and his grandparents uh, to Torquay from Rochdale and uh, he just loved Yellowway and when he retired from his full-time job uh, he collected a lot of memorabilia and as it, he displayed it, it became popular and many more people who'd got connections with Yellowway coaches from Rochdale uh, gave the many things you see displayed in here, photographs, articles and uh, general history of the company which ran for about a hundred, uh, almost a hundred years last century and was wound up in 1988. For a while the coach became a camper van and the rear end of the coach was the uh, sink and dining area. The notice says a ride in a yellow motor is worth two in a train. Motor coach tours. Well, the East Lancashire Railway, which I'm going to go on, has a pioneering history. Some of the UK's very earliest railways were in the northwest of England. One of them was the Manchester, Bury and Rossendale Railway, set up in 1844 to connect local towns to the cotton mills of the Irwell Valley. In 1846, it was renamed the East Lancashire Railway. Right, I'm speaking to Jeff. So, yeah. so what trains are in on the uh, East Lancashire Railway today? Any idea? Uh, as far as I'm aware, it will be 257 Squadron, which yeah. is the bullied Pacific. Yeah. And, and I've seen a diesel going up there. It's usually one diesel, one steam. Yeah. But the chances are the steamer will probably go onto the dining train, yeah. which is now in platform two. Obviously, they've got to 
prepare it, load the food, all that sort of thing. Yes. And with it being there in the morning, I presume there must be a lunchtime diner. Well, I'm on this lovely station with Bunting hanging up. I'm speaking to one of the coach party, James. So, so uh, tell me about your experience of uh, travelling on trains. I understand he went with your granddad. Yeah, he worked on the railway all of his working life. So we used to travel all over the country. Um, my grandparents and my mum and dad, and we used to enjoy travelling on trains. It was lovely, life experience. That's great. Thanks a lot, James. And here's our train. 257 Squadron Battle of Britain class. And looking out the window, there's a scout camp. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My grandson went camping with the beavers and um, they went away on, on camping and that he loves it, the freedom and to be able to play the games out in the fresh air. Perfect for them. It is perfect. Yeah, interacting with the other little boys. But yeah, it's good. Yeah. Wonderful. Beautiful scenery, isn't it? It is. It's a lovely villages we pass through. And we've arrived at Rams Bottom Station. It's quite a long uh, train trip, really, isn't it, Jane? It's it really is. It's places that you wouldn't see, isn't it? You know, yeah. you wouldn't see that if you were travelling any other um, through by road. So it's nice to see the countryside like that. Yes, and there's uh, stone uh, walls. There's also hills in the background. Yeah. Nice, uh, attractive villages you go through. It's really nice. Yeah, did you say it was the first time you've been on the steam train? Yes. It is, really? Oh, great. That's nice. That's yeah. an experience. It, it certainly is. Jim's over there. So what job do you do here? Hi, so I'm station staff here at the East Lanks Railway. Um, my primary role here is to assist people getting on and off the train and show everyone safe and have a good day. That's great. Thank you very much. It was a magnificent train you yeah. travelling on. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a guest this month in July. It's 257 Squadron. Um, sister locomotive to our own city of Wales. And yeah, brilliant local to have, and it's good to have a big local on the railway again. That's it, great stuff, and we're just about to travel back. Thank you very much to Dowie. Thank you, bye. What's your name? Adam, Adam Shuttleworth. Great to meet you. Thank you. We're on the train back to Berry now, and there's a lovely scene of a hill and a single tree and sheep sheltering round it. Very nice. Nice pastoral scene. There are some lambs as well. <laughs> Lady Telford. Thank you. Well, we've arrived back at Dowie Station. And it's been a lovely trip. I've come with Harry Shaw on my own, but I've found plenty of people to talk to and keep me company along the way. Okay. Thank you very much. And bye for now.
With Dave enjoying the delights of railways and the joy of steam, we come to the end of this edition of Outlook. So from the team and me, Nigel Hewin, it's good be- we- goodbye until next week.